Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. I'm so sorry. I know it's been a while since I dropped a podcast. I've had a number of other priorities these days, but I did promise to keep it going and keep it going. I will. Uh, I'm working mostly on my other podcast, The Heart of Soul. If you haven't checked that out, I invite you to do so. Uh, It's a different thing, but you'll see the similarities. But I did want to uh, share a rich and challenging conversation we had in a recent Clear and Open webcast. This was the eighth session in a course we're currently completing called Intuitive Leadership and Living. Some interesting things came out about challenging values, which in most circles, especially therapeutic and coaching circles, would be considered taboo. Unfortunately, this enables people to stay comfortable and not grow, and that's why in my world, I quote, go there. I'm a business coach, spiritual educator, and therapist, and I specialize in helping leaders get out of their own way. For more information about what I do or to become part of these conversations that you hear on this podcast, you can visit clearandopen.com. And by the way, my next course, Revealing Your Unconscious, begins September 23rd. That's this year, 2023. And this podcast actually serves as a pretty good introduction to that course. It's going to be very much like what we did in this Um, what you're about to hear. It's going to be very much a workshop um, like we did in the session with a focus on outlining and mapping aspects of your unconscious and the related principles. So that'll include different types of childhood wounding, compensation styles, finding your hidden medications that help you to not feel what is very much there, how to make your unconscious conscious, and a lot more. For for information on that, excuse me, go to courses.clearandopen.com. You'll see uh, Revealing Your Unconscious on the homepage there. That's courses.clearandopen.com. Thanks so much for listening. Greetings, everybody. Welcome. What's going on for you? So I was thinking about one of the things you said last week. Um, And you said lies have a contracting feeling and truth has an openness. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you said it, I felt something. Um, I didn't feel like you were lying. I don't mean that. I I felt that this was something new for me. Um, And also last week, I said something about the fact that I don't have a very good intuition. But I think that I do because I really started thinking about how it feels when people talk to me, when people say things. And I, and it, I went back over conversations previous where I knew people were lying and I could feel it. I could feel the energy in the room change and my gut changed. And it felt like I was wearing a tight belt around my chest. Um, but I didn't correlate that with lies. And I didn't, or, or mistruths or half truths or whatever it is. And I hadn't put that together. So I wanted to thank you for saying that last week. And um, that's one of the things that I think me and my intuition, how it shows it to me is with that contracting or opening. Um, and when I have what I think are open, honest, vulnerable conversations with friends or family, I do feel much more open. Like, and not in the traditional sense of open as if I'm telling you something private and I'm open about it, but in the sense of my chest feels bigger. I feel like I'm taking more space. I feel like the words are easier and lighter and stuff. So that's kind of been my week 
is working at looking at that and thinking about that and how it um, how it aligns with intuition. So mm-hmm. very good. So I assume all of you guys, everyone else who's here, you're actively attempting to listen and use your own intuitions. Does anybody have a question for Catherine? There was a question that was a meatball from my perspective that is right there to be asked. Want me to put it out there if I think I know? Yeah. Um, It's something along why did I ignore um, those sensations or the, or that intuition. Um, and I, that's what I was thinking you were thinking along that line. That's the direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I didn't always, um, I used to rely on it, but then I would say in the last, you know, couple stressful years, if it didn't align with my goal, or what I thought should be the truth, um, or what I wanted it to be, I kind of let it go. Um, um, Not let it go. I would know that there was dishonesty in it. I would feel it. I would disagree with the person or whoever, you know, was talking about it. But if I couldn't get the truth, um, I chose comfort over truth many times, even when intuitively I knew that wasn't the right choice. Mm -hmm. It served me uh, to continue moving forward in this path that I needed to dead end. And what path is that? Uh, Specifically, that for me was a path that um, I thought divorce was a bad thing. Uh huh. Yeah. That's a tough one to face. Yeah. Yeah. Does anyone else have any meatballs for me? <laughs> well, I, I have a just, and this is more just a clarifying question. You say, so you saying you chose comfort over truth so that you could continue to think that divorce was a bad thing. Is, is that what you mean? No, so I could continue on the path believing that I was um, fixing, saving a relationship because divorce was a bad thing to my brain. Yeah. Instead of embracing um, discomfort and dis-ease and continuing that conversation um, and getting at the real truth instead of just choosing to believe what was not the truth. Um, which was easier, easier. Yeah. Does that make sense, Josh? Yeah. And so then I would ask, where did the belief divorce is a bad thing come from? Um, you know, childhood, um, there on both my dad's side and my mom's side, um, there were no divorces, like none. Um, I didn't, none of my friends had divorces. So in childhood, it just wasn't an option. I'm also Catholic. Um, so it's not something I thought about. It was just something that was a belief because it just 
was never around. Um, my well, sister. Hold on, hold on. You're, yeah. you're Catholic. Yeah. I know you were raised Catholic. Yeah. Um, you're Catholic. I have a lot. <laughs> um, what do they call us? Uh, C and E, Christmas and Easter Catholics. Um, if I, I would say no. I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic. I have um, a lot of faith and beliefs in some of the Catholic preachings, but I am, thank you, Joseph, not a practicing Catholic. However, as a child, I was. Um, Sounds like some part of you still is. Some part of me still is, uh, and a part of me that um, really finds peace and enjoyment in um, churches. You mean comfort? uh, Yeah, yeah. Peace equals comfort sometimes. Hmm. Comfort over truth then? (laughs) Yeah. Because because what? Because I don't necessarily believe all the the teachings. So um, But you believe the ones that make you feel comfortable. Yeah. Hmm. And that's (laughs) Abby's giggling. And that's why, you know, uh, why I said churches versus the religion. Um, and peace versus comfort, because the actual um, building, the beauty of a church, the, the smell of a church, the quietness of a church, and it can it can be any religion, um, really does give me a sense of uh, peace. So, and I've probably been tying churches to religion a little too much. You you know what also provides a really deep feeling of peace. No. Heroin. I've heard, I've never done it, but I've heard it really makes you feel peaceful. (laughs) Well, that would be one option that I'm not going to choose, but. No, you're missing the point. I know. So tell me what the point is. Somebody else. That it's not the church that's giving me the peace. Oh, no, it, it is. I want to say I was also raised Catholic until my first communion. Um, and, and so I know a lot of those beliefs. Um, what I'm hearing about the peace and the comfort, and then you described the, the smell of the church and, and the, everything you described. Um, and then Joseph added on that heroin can give peace as well. So we've heard, to me, I'm hearing familiar comfortable areas from a childhood may give you that peace that's that's what i'm sensing because with me and i've not tried heroin but i've tried other things um that it's all a lie it's all a lie Uh, (laughs) but no i'm i know that i find comfort and i do relate peace to comfort a lot in in those familiar spots that i'm safe makes sense not necessarily the church my best friend in my whole life was my grandmother a very roman catholic devout woman and um just certain speech tones certain words that are familiar with that background give me that peace and i totally get that audra and thank you but tell me one more thing tell i don't see how heroin's in there because heroin I don't know that it is. I think Joseph would just add a statistic in there. <laughs> no, I think he's got a plan for the 
how this conversation is going. I mean, that, oh, sorry, uh, someone else, go ahead. I, I thought that heroin was like a, a pretty blatant metaphor for addiction and how we use addiction as ways to avoid discomfort. And it comes in all forms. And that can be religion as well. So Karl Marx, who said religion was the opiate of the masses. Thanks, Rebecca. Anyone else? Of course, everyone is free to choose and to engage in and go and believe whatever they want. That's true. But if you know that you have an existing truth versus comfort issue, we've established that, right? That's a given in our equation here, Catherine? That I did have that issue, yes, I would say. You think you're done with that issue? Um, I would say it's more latent now. Um, and I would also say um, that I, um, it's not ubiquitous in me, in that there are a lot of places in my life where I do choose truth over comfort. Um, the majority of my places, I choose truth over comfort. Um, that's what I would say. Are you looking for more ways to push that? Or are you complete for now? Oh, I'm not. Com yeah. No, I'm not complete yet. I haven't. Um, I would like in my life to choose truth over comfort in every situation. Um, and I'm not there yet. Okay. So what will I say next? Anybody? Where is it currently showing up that you're choosing comfort over truth? We already have that information. Why? Why what? That you're choosing comfort over truth, even that, in multiple areas of your life, and like that, digging into it further. That could be interesting. Yeah. That's a different road. But like I said, we're, that would be the beginning of a new road rather than the completion of one that we're already on. What's making that? Like what's the, you know, I don't know, childhood experience or wounding or cause of that orientation? What was that heroin thing I was on about? <laughs> Such a strong drug. <laughs> so, I've, so I've heard. <laughs> I've never tried it. I've <laughs> actually not. I'm not a drug person. I've never done any drugs. But I wouldn't judge anyone for trying heroin. I, if I had had the opportunity, I might have tried it. No interest. Never, never came across it. I would say, Catherine. I heard you say that you're not there yet. Um, what will get you there on the on all truth overcome? So interesting. Good question. Well, we are we already have the information. 
Yeah. But there was a little bit, not totally, but a little bit of a contradictory there. Cause when, when Joseph asked you whether or not, you know, like you were sort of done with that, you said like, it's more latent, like, were you satisfied with it and you're done with it? You said what's more latent and less present now based on this experience and understanding you had from last week. But then on the flip side, you said that you want to live in a way where you want to choose truth over comfort every time. And those two things are conflicting because if you really want that, then it can't be a latent thing in your life. Mm -hmm. Would it make sense to ask how your protectors are using um, church to protect a, a vulnerability or a wound from childhood. That could, that certainly could be interesting. What function is it actually serving? I mean, we already have that information though, right? What was the answer? What does it provide? Comfort. Comfort. Peace. Comfort mm -hmm. and peace. Mm -hmm. And what's fishy about that? For me, comfort is, uh, in, in a metaphor speaking, like laying down on a down's comforter. Whatever life circumstances I want or choose to look at, whether I'm right or wrong at the moment, whatever makes me comfortable. I think of it almost like a down's comforter coming around me. And peace is just an inner thing that just goes up and out. Um, for me, that's there's a difference for me with peace and comfort. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's her difference. I think that it's covering up the real peace and comfort because it's denying what's really going on underneath the comfort and peace. Which would be what? Sorry, I'm trying to figure out this app version here. Um, uh, it would be the kind of stuff you saw in me last week, maybe. Mm. Pain. Yes, yes. Yeah, the seeking of comfort like the down comforter metaphor, very nice, we call it a comforter, right? The seeking of comfort is proof of its lack rather than comfort as an arising result or reward. You know, well, let me go meta for a moment here <clears throat> because we're talking about a value system, right? Religion is a value system. And what is our society's relationship to challenging values? Because that's what we're dancing around right now. That's we why don't. All... <laughs> and why don't we? We're taught not to. Yes. <laughs> and why are we not supposed to challenge values? That's why there's tension in the room right now, because there's a taboo. We could be talking about blowjobs right now. It would have the same effect. Everybody <laughs> would have a 
kind of contraction, right? But blowjobs are a part of life. They happen every day. So why are we not supposed to talk about this particular blowjob? And I'm saying blowjob many times in order to maybe <laughs> break the ice a little bit. Why are we not supposed to talk about... That's pretty funny that I did that, actually. Because <laughs> people get uncomfortable with certain subjects like sex, especially but, if it's like in a certain context with people. And same thing with religion. Like that's that person's, if they want to go believe that and they can believe whatever they want to believe, I get to believe what I want to believe. Everybody gets their own individual comfort in their religion. Right. Okay. But so we have, shared val- we have shared values that create those discomforts. Somebody decided that you wrote a whole email about that the other day. Oh yeah, right. Did God, you? I totally did. I forgot that that connects to this. Yes, um, yeah. So that that's exactly where I was going. Thank you, Christine. Um, you're you're being just a beacon of light right now. I appreciate that, and thank you for the, the reminder, Tom. So the um, the question is: Is the discomfort inherent in the subject, or Tom is asserting we have an agreement about that? Is there something inherently uncomfortable in, remember the six things, the clear and open six things, sex, death, love, we can talk about, um, sex, death, uh, spirituality in there, well, God, 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 money, right? You're not supposed to talk about it's money you make, right? So Mm -hmm. is there something inherent in death, money, God, sex? Is it in the thing that, that, is that where the discomfort in is, is? Mm -mm. So if it's not in the thing, which is pretty easy to agree upon, right? Then why have we agreed mostly as a society that these things should not be talked about? Why would that be? I, I don't remember that blog I wrote, uh, unfortunately, but I, I may have answered that question in it. <laughs> I remember some well, things about it, but man. It's the much. feeling behind it, but though it comes to my mind is like guilt and shame and whatever, like there are negative feelings with associated with those things because like as if they're supposed to be bad or taboo or... Uh-huh. Right. Well, now, now the blog's coming back to me. And this is how it works when your mind's mostly been erased by the non-dual. Um, you remember what you need to remember when you need to remember it. So I'm the part of me that was in a panic that was like, Tom just said this connected to a blog and I have no memory of it. And so that was a panic that happened. And then it's like, oh, magically the information is showing up. That's cool. So remember the name of it was uh, uh, something like where your values come from and why that should matter to you. And the premise of it is, anybody who maybe remembers better than I do? If you don't consciously choose your values, they will be... Chosen for you. Chosen for you, or you will adopt what society wants you to. So, yes. So, if our values are largely unconscious, why would it make sense then that we're not supposed to talk about them, much less challenge them? They're because that would like disrupt the social fabric. <laughs> yes, but before it would do that, it would. But before it would do that, would you say, Audra? It's on the same sense of being part of the unconscious, out of sight, out of mind in a way. And then for me, uh, whether it's blowjobs or religion, I get a little uncomfortable because of my own judgment on the topic. Uh-huh. So if values, all that's true. If our values are chosen unconsciously or, and or conditioned into us unconsciously, why would the unconscious, I'm asserting, why would the unconscious be the one who doesn't want to talk about them? Is it that we unconsciously don't want to talk about them 
Or is it that we consciously don't want to talk about them? Or both? Both. And how much of uh, our lives are driven by the unconscious? Like 80 or 90%, right? Is it, is it Freud who said 80% or something? He, he didn't ever commit, as far as I know, to a percentage like that. But it's generally accepted among people who do deep therapy that it's more than half. I hold it as around 70%. Not always. It's a, some days can be a lot more. Some days can be a lot less. But on average, it's a big majority. So if you accept... What Freud taught, and by the way, I'm working on part two of that blog, and I'll probably now have to post it in the course. I was working on it last night, so you'd think it would be on my mind. Um, if the majority of our decisions and values and ways of looking at reality are driven by our unconscious, and our unconscious is where our values are conditioned into us, what purpose does not talking about our values serve? What doesn't want to be revealed? True self. Because? Well, that's a tough question. I withdraw that. Um, yes. No, you don't have to withdraw because I can answer. Okay, um, kick out. True self because, yes, because um, I myself have a very colorful imagination. Everything I hear, my mind gives me a visual of. So, I mean, just imagine what going through my head when we're talking about church and then heroin and then blowjobs and then religion. There's a lot of, you see what I'm saying? So true self is, what do I think about it? And, and, and what am I going to be thought of for what I think about it? Because, I mean, I'm, I get downright crude with any topic, no matter what it is. I Broccoli love that. Can be. I, I love that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, and uh, it's it's part of it's part of the beauty of words mm -hmm. to me. Uh, yeah, everything is a picture page uh, in my life. The way I look at things. So yeah, I think it's the true self that makes me uncomfortable. Well, I think that that's true. It skips over a few steps. So let me fill in a few things. So we'll arrive at the true self. So I think that's right, but it skips over some steps in our little metaphysical dialectic here. That's what this is, in case you're wondering. That uh, conversation to arrive at truth, a dialectic. So let's illustrate this thusly. What's the cause of suffering in Catholicism? Original sin. Yes. And original sin is a concept created about 2,000 years prior to psychology. What, what aspect, what emotional wound is it um, attempting to explain? Feeling separate from God, right? It's more specific than that. There's lots of different kinds of separation from God. You could say the same thing about Buddhism or Islam. They're all addressing separation from God. But that's true. Fall from grace. Uh, yes. Fall. Fall from grace was the... Was the um, it's related, but what's the feeling that all that whole... Hmm? Unworthiness. Yes. Unworthiness and shame. So 2,000 years prior to shame and unworth being talked about, 
as psychological issues related to childhood wounds, a bunch of people, not Jesus, because he didn't cook up original sin, that wasn't his teaching, it was several hundred years later, uh, a bunch of people cooked up a mythology to explain where the feeling of shame come from, came from. Again, almost 2,000 years prior to any appreciation that parenting does wounds and there's an emotional body, 2,000 years before there was an appreciation of an unconscious, all of that was a mythology mixed with real spiritual teachings, but specifically to explain the feeling of shame, which prior to that, there was no explanation for, not, not widely considered. Audrey, you're muted. Uh, prior to that, there was no you muted yourself. The consideration of um, your mute is going in and out. Okay, now I'm unmuted. Prior to that, there was no need for the feeling of shame. No need for the feeling? Because everything was fine. Everybody was doing what they were supposed to. You think that's, so, huh? That's that's my perception, yes. In the prior to the creation of Christianity in 300 AD, everything was fine. Well, no, I'm thinking more on Adam and Eve's side, the oh. shame because they ate that apple. There was no need. Oh, okay. In that mythology, yes, right. Okay, I'm talking about the the subscription to why Christianity was and is so popular. There's over two billion adherents to it. And it's popular because it explains, it's a mythology that explains why people feel shame and what they can do about it. Does that make sense? Now, you generally won't hear Christianity described in this way, but is there any disagreement that that's what's going on? This is a paradigmatic analysis of Christianity, which it itself generally doesn't do. Cause of suffering is the reason you feel Unworth is because you're originally sinned. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the shame will be abated and everything will be fine. But only after you die. But where did like the original... So that was like downstream of people feeling shame and unworth. Where did that come in? With the, the actual feeling of shame? Yeah, like that people felt shame and unworth. And then at some point later, they needed to... They felt the need to like give people an explanation for that feeling. But that means that people were feeling it, struggling with it, whatever. It probably wasn't called those, you know, words, but what is, what does that look like? What does that history look like pre the story of the mythology to make people feel like they could cope with it better? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know how much I can say about it right now. Um, It, I would say the shame was already there. And people were compensating for it in various different ways that were working and not working. I mean, there was just in Greece alone and the, you know, between 500 BC and zero, there were, you know, countless different philosophies. Like, for example, Pythagoras, who we all learn about the theorem. He, back then, mathematicians were also philosophers. Pythagoras, um, who gave us the Pythagorean theorem, um, believed in the transmigration of souls and the sinfulness of eating beans. True story. So his, he had a model that said, literally, the reason you feel shame and unworth is because you're eating too many beans, at least in part. A bit less sophisticated than Christianity, I can see why it didn't catch on. 
But if you eat beans, I don't know if this is the is the case, but you use your imagination a little bit. If you eat a lot of beans, it makes you fart, right? Mm -hmm. And then that will make you feel bad about yourself. And so it's probably a sin to eat beans. Like these are the kind this is, I don't know if that was his argument. That's another societal judgment that it's bad. That's right. Farting is bad. They decided that. Yeah. We decided that. Somebody decided it for us. Yeah, exactly. They because didn't like the way it smelled, so they were like, "That's bad." That's bad. It must be downstream <laughs> of of um, in Chinese medicine and traditional Chinese medicine, they call gas evil wind. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to use that. So they had their own independent, <laughs> probably that would have been uh, at least a thousand years prior to Pythagoras, at least 500 or a thousand years prior to Pythagoras. So there was a general independently arising anthropologically um, universalized phenomenon about the um, sinfulness of gas and no appreciation that maybe the reason we feel bad about our gas is because um, we feel bad about our human functions which is because we didn't have good parenting and we weren't fully received in all of our humanness by our parents. That would take several thousand years later and it's just a notion that's still catching on. So instead, we still think that farting is bad. You can't talk about it. If I were to say farting a few more times, you'd start to get really uncomfortable if you're not already, right? <laughs> no, except for Audra. God bless you. <laughs> Much worse than blowjobs, that's for sure. We're, we're past discomfort from blowjobs. You could say anything now. Oh, my God. I, I, if, I, if I had more time, I would put a little counter at the bottom when I print this video for how many times we say the word blowjob just for fun. <laughs> like South Park did that one episode with the word shit, I think. So it's fun to blow up these taboos, right? Because they start to seem kind of ridiculous. But so let's go back to the thread here. If, I'm, if uh, you can help my mind get back on it, uh, we were talking about um, um, oh Christianity as a, a shame. <clears throat> shame. So I have a question. Can I ask a question? Please. Relevant? I think Always. relevant question. Isn't this just more ways to build up the protector? In a way, I mean the the kind of the separation from our true self. All these yeah. societal. Yes. So let me explain. Exactly. That puts me exactly on track. Thank you, Tom. Whew. Okay. That puts me better on track than I would have gotten myself to. So let me insert a couple of steps in between. So psycho-emotionally speaking, the shame is in all of us. It's experienceable, unworth shame. You make a mistake and you feel terrible about yourself, right? By default, we don't go, Oh, you know what? I'm a, a, one of God's children. I feel the, the love and, and light of all of creation. And I know I'm inherently good. This mistake is just an honest mistake. No, we, we make mistakes every year that bring us, if not more often than that, that bring us to depths of shame and unworth and like, oh God, I'm such a bad person and all of that. That's wound-based, right? That's not the authentic state of a human being, I'm asserting. So human beings, meaning-making machines that we are, we need an explanation for that. We need a way to manage that shame because if you don't do something with that, it severely affects, at the very least, your work performance. Or, you know, you may want to kill yourself if you feel so much shame. A lot of depression is actually misdiagnosed shame because the psychological profession doesn't really see shame as a thing. They just collapse it with depression because it feels similar to the untrained heart. 
but there's no anti-shame pills yet. I guarantee you there will be in the next 20 years. They'll figure it out eventually. Well, evolve, not figure it out. <clears throat> so the protector in us ha is responsible for managing that shame. And by managing, I mean pushing down the pain of it because shame is really uncomfortable. So a great story that that shame that you feel is actually not your fault, but handed down to you from ancestor after ancestor after ancestor, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, who did something you had no control of, has nothing to do with you, right? It has nothing to do with you. That stain is on your very soul, however that works, which is not inherently and purely good, but originally sinned. And you're still paying for the morality and mistakes of your ancestors. Therefore, all you have to do is believe in this guy who somehow died for your sins before you even committed them. He died for your sins in advance. That's amazing. That's like paying for a crime before it's committed. Certainly a miracle how that works. So all you gotta do is give over your heart to him and then all of your sins will be forgiven. But you won't necessarily experience that this life. You will get a hit of hope and excitement about that. It's going to make you feel good, that faith that your sins will be washed away. But you're going to, every time that shame comes up in you, you're going to have to re-up your commitment, re-up your faith in Jesus, that when you die, all of those sins are going to be washed away and you'll go to heaven. That is Christianity. And there's lots of different sects and some would believe in some parts and not others. But that, those are the metaphysics of that. And all of that serves as a structure to try to manage shame. That doesn't come from Adam and Eve. It comes from poor parenting. But that's up to you what you want to believe. You can believe that parenting is the hardest job in the world and, um, you know, yada, yada, yada. It produces shame to the degree that we don't land in the hearts of our caregivers. Or you can believe that all of humanity started with two people in a garden 4,000 years ago. It's up to you. Which is more compelling for you? You can believe that, in the mom. Hmm, go ahead. On that part, you, you made the comment earlier about how original sin came after Jesus. Can you expand mm -hmm. on that? There's no evidence. I mean, first of all, um, all of Jesus is, I don't know if Jesus wrote at all. I don't think he did, actually. But um, all, none of the Gospels were written by Jesus. <clears throat> Most of them were written by people who never even knew the guy. Well, wait, but original sin was in the Old Testament, not the Gospels. Was right? it? Yeah. Adam and Eve and all that stuff. That's all. Oh, yeah, that's right. Genesis. Yeah, that's yeah, all. you're right. Yeah, that's that's way before the, that's before Jesus. So, and what he's because I think Christine, I think you missed it, and I believe what I heard Joseph say is Jesus came after original sin. That was not one of Jesus's teachings yes. or concoctions. That's right. That, Sorry, that oh, existed already. Yes, I got that wrong. You're right. It was not part of. You're right. It was I, not after. It was before, but it was codified after Christianity was created. Uh, largely at the Council of Nicaea in 323 AD by a bunch of people who were trying to codify Jesus's teachings and basically sort through the Old Testament and the New Testament and codify it into something that could be a mass consciousness uh, way of organizing people. 
you Google the Council of Nicaea, you'll find it. That's where they made decisions about what aspects, what gospels would be canon and what would not be. For example, the Gospel of St. Thomas is not part of Christian canon, but it's a real gospel and it's really good. It's and, and same and same with, oh yeah, St. Thomas, Tommy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's real spiritual metaphysics in the Gospel of St. Thomas and stuff that actually is esoteric um, spirituality, but it was excluded from all of that because uh, it was turned into a belief-based religion, not an esoteric spirituality. So it was Christianity was crafted. It wasn't taught by Jesus. It was it was crafted uh, after the same thing happened with Islam um, from Muhammad. But what Muhammad taught was more like Sufism, and then it was exotericized and made popular. Um, that's what I talk about in the blog, right? And it's the same thing with psychology. Freud taught that we should be curious about our unconscious. And very quickly, that was co-opted by behaviorism that says, no, no, let's try to control our unconscious. That's not what Freud taught. Mm-hmm. But doesn't that, couldn't that give more fodder or validity to like what Jesus did teach? Because he wasn't like Christianity and the, and the codifying of it came afterwards. What he was teaching was something else. And that could actually say like what he was teaching was more meaningful. It wasn't part of the organized structure to control people. Absolutely. Yes. But but Jesus, Yeshua, the Nazarene, first of all, his name was not Jesus. There was no just sound in that language. And the name Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't exist. And he didn't freaking have blue eyes, which is absurd. Not in that region of the world. Um, and obviously he wasn't white. So why he's a white blue eyed guy, you know, um, I would, I would question any church that is portraying him that way, but yes, the esoteric, esoteric teachings of Yeshua, the Nazarene, which is his real name are hugely important and, um, still relevant today in many ways, just as most people don't actually know what they are. Same with uh, Islam, same with Buddhism. Buddhism is a far, far afield approximation of what true Zen was. It's all been completely distorted. That's the important thing to know. So if you accept this and you could see that and you could study it and learn more about it, this is part of what the answer of why we're not supposed to talk about values because our protector knows they're distorted. It knows they're not true. It knows they're fairy tales. It knows they're mythologies that are serving a purpose, but are not the truth. Wait, that our values are not true, that our values are mythologies? That, that's what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. So let me put it another way, because just so I can understand it better. Because mm-hmm. what I was thinking we were going towards is that if we talk about these things that are value-based that I didn't decide on my own, they were pre-recorded in my brain that I don't want to talk about them because my intelligent brain and my subconscious are in disagreement. And I would find it difficult to back one or the other, right? In an argument. So if we steer clear of it, then I don't have to prove one or the other is right or wrong. That's true too. Yeah. There's a lot of different spokes of this wheel because the most value systems are seriously incoherent. So, for example, uh, what did you call it? A C and E Christian? Oh yeah, I did a really good job of explaining how ridiculous that is. Right? Uh huh. Like 
church when I want to. I don't have to follow the rules and I don't have to have communion, but I'll take it when I really want to. Um, and I'll call myself a Catholic, but I'm not really a Catholic. So I don't follow the rules. Um, so yeah, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I'm going to from now on say that I was, I was raised as a Catholic and, um, that I believe in some of the faith of that religion, but I am not a Catholic. So you still believe in belief as a vehicle of spirituality? Yes. Hmm. So believing in what? So believing in, uh, well, how about just believing in the soul? Like you can't feel it, you can't touch it. Like we talked about, right? Love. Mm -hmm. I believe in love. That's got to be a belief because I can't feel it or touch it. Like all of those things, right? So I'm not saying I believe in, um, I'm not willing to get rid of the word belief because if the word belief goes away, there must be data behind it to back it up, right? It's either data proven or belief proven. Okay. Uh, aren't, aren't we aren't we going for knowing here? And, and uh-huh. I, I I have an expression that I've heard that says belief is a placeholder for knowing. I've heard that before. But is knowing confirmed with data? Yeah, Depends on what experience. you mean by data. So how do you that's confirm? I, how do you confirm you love someone? That's what we're going for here with intuition and practice and, and everything, isn't it? It depends on what you mean by data. Data is a reductionistic term used by science. There's no uh, love meter you can hold up to someone's heart and says, oh, yes, this person is loving this other person, that you can't derive data in that way from it. You don't, nobody experiences love as quantifiable in that way, but it is experienceable. So here we are talking about another value, and this is a good one to be talking about, especially related to intuition, because the value is about belief. And belief is a commonly taught, conditioned into us value that exists in all five world religions, covering about, uh, what, five and a half billion people who've been inculcated into belief. And then after those big five world religions, we can also add in atheists, which are a growing population, because atheism is also a belief system, isn't it? It's not an experience that there is no God. It's a belief that there is no God, which is the other side of coin, the other side of the coin of believing that there is. So that's where most of the world lives. Now, what organ in our body does belief? The mind. The mind does belief. Belief happens here. Thank you for pointing, Christine. Beacon of light as usual. So, is the mind experienceable? Uh, is God experienceable by the mind? Well, for thousands of years, philosophers have tried to uh, argumentate their way to experiencing God. But the true sages and saints of our history have always talked about the heart when it comes to experiencing God, haven't they? So what if God is only experienceable by the heart 
And I would also add the third eye. You experience the creation relational aspect of God more so with here. That's the domain of discarnate spirits and past lives. That happens here. And the experience of God is a fourth chakra issue. That's love because God is love. The mind doesn't experience love. It can't because love can't be cut up into boxes and the mind cuts everything up into boxes. Really useful, but not with love. So in the absence, if we are so fused to our way of being as mind first, we're processing reality mind first, in the absence of having an open enough heart to experience in God, what are we left with? Belief. So if you look in the original um, uh, text of the Bible, there's a really interesting thing about the word know and believe. Um, it's amon or something like that. It's the same root as amen. Amen means truth, like I know it. This is knowledge. But the word, I forget, I think it's amon or Am, it's something like that. The way we use believe today is the same way they used that word back then. I believe this is a water bottle. We can say that. I believe it's sunny right now, right? But what you really mean is I know. So there's a wishy-washiness to the language there. You can mean believe to mean I know, I believe this to be true. I believe we need more gun control. What do you really mean? Well, that's like your opinion. You think that should be. You press them like, I know, that's the answer. Right? But belief is tricky that way. People, it's supposed to be a, like Tom said, a placeholder for experience. I believe that New London style pizza in Concord, Massachusetts is the best pizza in town. And then you eat the pizza. Then you're supposed to lose the belief and have the experience. You're not supposed to form a value system around faith in that pizza. You're supposed to eat the freaking pizza. But if you can't get to that pizza and there's a hole in your soul and you're lost and confused and looking for answers and you're in pain and feel unworthy, then maybe believing and faithfully abiding with the thought of that pizza lifts you up into hope and gets you through another day. Is that so bad? Is that so bad to form a, um, uh, an identity around how great that pizza might be and never taste it? What's wrong with that? If it lifts you up in your day, if it gives you comfort, what's wrong with living that utter and complete and total lie that builds a personality that isn't you? What could be wrong with that? And if it lifts you up so... Hmm? It deprives us of knowing who we are. Yes. And if it makes you feel so good believing how good that pizza must be, well, then why wouldn't you want to share that with others? And then you can get together and talk about how great that pizza must be. And then you've got other people in your community all based around something no one has experienced. 
And you might think about that pizza so much that you might think you actually taste it sometimes. And you go, oh yeah, I swear it came to me like a, like a vision, like a revelation. I tasted that pizza. Really, I, like, I had the experience. And that's what religion is. It's a mass delusion filling an emotional hole that keeps us from ourselves, that keep us split, keeps us split from our actual inner reality and our outer reality because it's comfortable, because that's how much pain we're in as a species. Which is actually keeping us split from the divine and God itself. Thank which you. is the very unfortunate, I hate to say ironic, but you know, unfortunate part of it is it's keeping us not just from ourselves, but from our true selves, which is actually the divine itself and experiencing the divine itself. Yes. And the earliest known teaching I know of that is Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic in the 13th century, who taught that boldly, that your belief in God prevents your experience of it. And he was killed for that. Well, he was excommunicated by the church and he died in, uh, I believe he died in a holding cell before they executed him for it. Why would they execute him for that idea? Why is that so threatening an idea that you had to kill someone for it? Because it was a challenge to a value that was serving as heroin for millions of people. Can we, can we um, connect that to intuition somehow? Because <laughs> I think we're in, the, the, we're in the, the value of belief, but I yep. mean, intuition is, there's, there's hardly any concrete evidence. But it's not belief. Right. Okay. So I wanted to like connect all the way back to the beginning when Thank Catherine you. was talking about um, her, the, the, her chest and heart and whether it was feeling expansive or mm -hmm. closed. And I know when I have like little intuitive hits and it comes and I'm like, God, is that like my mind or is that actually something coming from, and, you know, my intuition? I do check in with my with my heart. I check in and to see how I'm thinking about how I'm thinking about that and how it's feeling in my in my heart in yeah. my chest. The heart and is then a, if ahead. it's feeling tight, if it's mm -hmm. feeling closed, then I'm like, okay, me uh, either that was I'm thinking about it wrong, or um, sometimes it's the wrong timing. But also, um, it helps me to kind of feel into it whether i'm whether i feel it in my head or if i feel it in my in my heart mm -hmm. yeah so all of that is good, true like way to test it it is it's a very good yeah if you have access to and can actually feel your heart the majority of people don't actually do that it's not something we can just automatically do the same way most people can't use their intuition but, but you it can. is easy for you it is well, no, I mean, anybody can do it. No. Catherine was talking about it when she, when someone was talking to her and she's like, I'm feeling a little bit closed here. Yes. And but, she's a woman. I guess test, test it out because I've heard you talk about it too. Sure. Um, 
in in real time you're like oh i feel kind of close yes. to that so let, let me clue you in on something because both you and Catherine are women you have 30 to 50 percent better access to your hearts than the average man why do you think men drive you so crazy all the time they're not feeling anything <laughs> do you not realize this but what does you're it like, feel like it's easy men? are you kidding me no it's not <laughs> I would say it's not that they're not feeling it, it's they're ignoring their feelings. I think well, there's a difference. You can, okay, yeah. What is, what's the I can tell like, when they're feeling stuff and they're just total like wall up repression and not wait, letting it. it yes, has, like, but a, that's, that's an essence and expression thing. You can tell yeah. that they're feeling something, i.e. Yeah. you feel it before they do. Yeah. So that I would say to be rigorous with the words, you can tell there's a feeling in there, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're feeling it. Fair. There's a big difference. And so that's another thing a woman would do. Oh, no, they're feeling it. Mm -hmm. No, they're not. So I mean, don't give happening? them the... Hmm? What's happening when you're not feeling it? You're repressing the feeling. Are you still in your head or are you just like... The mind uh, is typically... <laughs> the mind is typically used to repress. There's lots of different ways to repress, but the mind is usually a big part of it. Because if you were all the way in your heart or even a little bit... That's where the feelings are. You'd feel it. So newsflash for women, I'm being playful here, but uh, you're projecting how much you feel onto men. They feel a lot less than you do. And everyone calls it sensitivity, right? Women are more sensitive. Men are right. less. And, th and that's really, yeah, that's just, that's a reduction of it and a dismissal of it. It's like, no, they're using an organ of perception better than you but men are real men now men are and i'm this is all general there are men who feel more than women do it's, it's i'm generalizing here but men are in general i'll buy the same token they're better thinkers than women are now we're very comfortable in our society talking like that men are better critical thinking and whatever and stuff and women they're more sensitive you see you see how screwed up that dynamic is it's like no when men in general, or you, it better to better to say, Yang is more um, thinking oriented, and Yin is more emotively connected, and those are equally useful. In fact, I would say that the heart stuff is more important because it's more essential. They're both important, but for women, it gets reduced to sensitivity, like oh, you're being too sensitive, right? Because that's a good. Oh, I love how sensitive you are. Oh no, 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 that's too sensitive. But you're feeling something I'm feeling, and telling me I'm feeling something. I'm not feeling that. Get out of here. That's invasive. Right? That happens between men and women every day. But women can't help but feel what other people are feeling very often because they're just more heartful and then men so hate them for it. The, the, the phrase, you're so sensitive, is a value on sensitivity. Yes, because if you turned it around and say, well, you're so thinky about it. <laughs> like... Oh, no, but that's good. You're just thinking again, aren't you? No, no, but that's, the thinking's good. You're supposed to be thinking all the time. Remember, think before you speak and leaving an examined life and, you know, thinking's good. All, that, all those feelings fair. are problematic. That's why we need things like Christianity to deal with all those difficult feelings. Go ahead, Tom. Here's the judgy, here's the judgy version. You're so calculating. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yeah. That's the judgy version of thinking, right? Something it's sure. Like that. Instead of seeing like, Thinking, feeling, it's all good. What are we doing with it? It's all good. Is it balanced and what are we doing with it? 
balancing it as part of doing with it. So let me back up because we're running out of time here. I can go five minutes over or so and tie this all back into intuition. And then there's a terror like, I don't think you're going to be able to do that. Okay, you don't have to. I got it, I think. Because that was the right thing to ask Rebecca a few minutes ago. Because our values filter our reality, they affect our way of perceiving it, right? Belief in belief, belief in God, um, belief that uh, the mind can apprehend all aspects of reality, many paradigms would subscribe to, um, belief that only the heart knows what's true, which would be the pendulum swing to the other way. All of these values become filters for our reality. Remember the Play-Doh discs? You put in different discs and you crank the Play-Doh through or push it through and it comes out a star. It comes out like spaghetti, right? That's what value systems do. They filter our reality like a pair of glasses. To the degree we can't take those glasses off of our value system and look at them, that's meta. Oh, what scratches might be in my lens? How is this lens making this look a certain way about men, women, God, sex, love, death, intuition, all of that? It all colors our reality. So what most people want to do is they want to change their outer results and grow in skill, in knowledge, maybe even in awareness, while retaining the same values. That's what people want. The values are the primary problem, you see? But nobody wants to talk about values because they don't want to look at how fucked up they are. Because they're cobbled together, they're unconsciously injected into us, they're nonsensical, contradictory, distorted, ancient, all innocently so, but they're broken and incoherent. But because we unconsciously and innocently build an identity around our values, which is not necessary, you don't have to do that. As children, we inevitably have to, but a human being doesn't have to have an identity that's inextricably intertwined with values. And you hear this every day. Well, I believe in, you know, Christ as my savior. That's who I am. Or, you know, I go to meetings to stop myself from drinking. That's just who I am. That's just, that's, that's me. This is what I've always believed and I always will. That's me. That's that grip, whether it's spoken or not, when people identify themselves with values in that way, that's duct taping that value system glass, glasses onto your face. There's no meta, no meta space to be able to go, I wonder how my value systems are coloring my reality, influencing how I interact with it, and so the results that I have. But that's happening every moment every moment and if you don't see that that's happening in people every moment that's only because and in yourself that's only because you don't know your own values not thoroughly because our values dictate our actions every moment the fundamental essence of a value system is what's good and what's bad what's good and what's bad
Would you say, though, that we don't know what values we've been conditioned with? Yeah, sure. That we're operating off of. Yeah, we don't know what we're... And I can say today, like, as who I am now, this is like what, like the values I would put at the top of my list. I think that's different than the values that I was taught when I was a child. Sure. Even though they're still there, and I may not be saying like, Yes. This is no longer a value for me, but it's still dictating the way that I live, but I wouldn't put it on my values list. Yes. And so to the degree, especially, thank you for the clarification there, the degree to which our values are unconscious to us, but we're still living because the values are not in our minds. They're actually in our emotional bodies. There's stories like fairy tales that exist in our emotional bodies. Well, it's a combination of mind and emotional body. The mind holds values conscious, consciously and unconsciously, and is using them to manage wounds. That's why they're there. Why do you think so? Anytime there's in society, like, why would someone do this senseless act? There's no such thing as a senseless act. A militant Muslim blows up a, a village uh, or a, a market square because they think they're going to um, arrive in paradise and have 72 virgins. Imagine the blowjobs. Just so to get one more in. Thank you. I knew I could feel it in you, Audra. <laughs> That's but why is that? Why do they believe that? That's built on a set of premises that goes all the way down to their individual pride and is the cause of separation from God. So if they serve God in a selfless way and blow themselves up, that gets them into paradise. That's a value system that only sticks to wounding. But they don't even know that that's all of what's going on. Right. Because so you can say that they can't not do it because this value system is so strong, it forces it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's I often say or to, in my own head, I'll be reading an article and I'm trying to think, I can't know if I can think of a good example right now, but um, maybe I will. Uh, So-and-so said blah, blah, blah. And I'll, I'll hear in my head. That's what they have to say because what they say is a downstream result of all sorts of values that begins with, this goes back to paradigmatic analysis. If you guys did that course, if you remember that course, it starts with anytime anybody opens their mouth or even just has a thought or takes an action, that's the downstream result of what is the nature of the universe? What is the cause of suffering? What should be done about it? What is the ultimate state of consciousness? What's good and bad? And what should I do today? All of that funnels down to every moment of our day. It's all there. And with practice, you can learn how to read this in people. And with even more practice, you can learn how to help them deconstruct those values. But going all the way back, go maybe a couple more minutes here. Going all the way back to um, Catherine, thank you for being a kind of uh, on the spot here. You're handling that very gracefully. One of the most important things about values that I wouldn't want to end this conversation without speaking to is the importance of coherence. Because, uh, and this is going to be covered in the blog that I'm going to be releasing in the next week or so about subjectivism and objectivism. Back when things like Islam and Christianity and Judaism were created, that was an objective era in history. You didn't pick and choose. There was no such thing as a C&E Christian until probably the Renaissance or maybe even later. 
If you were a Christian, you did all the things they said. You believed all the things they believed. And if you didn't believe it, you hid that or worked it through. Because it was an objective religion. Islam is an objective religion. This is the deal. This is where you fit. And that's it. And you didn't live in a community that was heterogeneously religious. You lived among people who shared those values, and that was it. The Protestant Reformation changed all that because that objectivism got really oppressive in Catholic-ruled Europe. It started to get abused. And so the pendulum has swung all the way to the other Protestant Re Reformation said, well, we want to be able to interpret the Bible however we want. We don't want an authority telling us. And of course, that was threatening a value system. If the hierarchy goes all the way up to God. And so there was all sorts of wars and battles fought. Now, I'll fast forward all the way to the freedom of religion, which people have interpreted as, I can pick and choose different values from different paradigms, and I can do the C and E, but not necessarily the original sin. I don't have to do confession, right? Because that's Catholicism, right? And the rest of Christianity doesn't do that. I don't have to bear all this shame stuff. I can pick and choose. I can sort of like create my own major, you know, like in college. That's spiritual buffetism. And of course, everybody is free to do that. But what happens is you end up with a cobbled together contradictory value system because if you really examine the, the um, mosaic, let's say, that's a kind way of saying it, the mosaic value system, lots of little pieces together. If you really examine it and go drill down into it, you see the shit don't fit together. You can't believe in integrity, and I mean literally wholeness, you can't believe that your shame is caused by poor parenting and caused by Adam and Eve's original sin at the same time. You can't. You can't, it's like there's a thing, there's such a thing as Buddhist psychology. But the essence of Buddhism is that there's no self. So who's the therapy for? Who's getting the therapy? So what a Buddhist psychologist, if they're really in integrity, what they're doing is helping you to process your childhood with the end goal of realizing that you don't have a self. So you can have a big belly laugh about the whole thing. But they won't tell you that up front. But I tell you what, I worked with a Buddhist psychologist for a while. And I've, I discovered something experientially really amazing. She was wonderfully talented and helped me uh, with my Zen path. She became a Zen coach for me really well. But what I found was after I completed with her and started working with someone who was not a Buddhist psychologist, who was a really talented facilitator, all sorts of emotional material came up in me in one month that didn't come up for three years with that Buddhist psychologist. And do you know why? Because the aspects of my unconscious could feel, and I didn't even realize it, they could feel that those aspects were being elicited with the intention of being transcended. Elicited with the intention of receiving so that they could be disappeared. And they wouldn't come out because they knew they were real. And that's the kind of shit that happens when you combine incompatible paradigms. It's like taking parts from one car and putting them on another car. It may run, depending, but you are not going to create a high-performance vehicle that way because you're mixing things together that don't go together. So if you're going to be Catholic, then fucking nail it, man. Be the best Catholic in the world. Be the most integrous, rigorous Catholic there is.
If you're going to be an atheist, then don't subscribe to anything Catholic at all. That's my advice. Dead end the paradigm. Do it all the way. Because what happens alternatively is our protectors pick and choose, oh, I like this part of this paradigm, but that part makes me uncomfortable. Because why? Because that would challenge my values and challenge might bring up some discomfort. Okay, well, let's not do that. As soon as that paradigm gets uncomfortable, let's go over to this one. So I'll do a few ayahuasca ceremonies, but I won't do 50. So I'll do 12 weeks of therapy, but I won't do five years. So I'll read one Enneagram book, but I'll never really learn the system. You see, all of that is horizontal skating. Dead end the whole damn thing. Find the limits. Ring it out all the way. Otherwise, you just go in circles. And that limits you as a human being. It splits up your soul. And those disparate, disintegrous value systems make you not whole. And then that limits your intuition to bring it home. Because a whole soul is automatically intuitive. But if you're split up, your intuition gets shut down. Especially if the paradigm you subscribe to says that intuition is like what witches do, which is what Christianity says, exoteric anyway. Intuition? No, no. Only Jesus could do that. Wait, I thought you were supposed to become like Jesus, though. You see how quick the contradictions are? Jesus had an incredibly active third eye. And you're supposed to be like Jesus. Right, but not with the third eye, though. That's not good. Well, which, what, give me the list then. How am I supposed to be like Jesus? He's the son of God, right? So how am I supposed to be like him? That seems impossible. Well, be generous and blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, I can be generous, but I can't use my intuition, right? Because that's what witches do. That's like a Satan thing, right? You see how confused it is? It's just primitive. And it was a wonderful technology for its time, but its time is over. Okay, shut up, Joseph. We've got to complete Thank you for listening. Look for the assignment. It's going to be about examining how your paradigm, how your current paradigm may be limiting your intuition. Look for that. Thanks for being here today, you guys. Bye for now. Bye.